You are are listening to Making Bank, where we uncover the mindset and success strategies of the top 1% so you can amplify your life and your business. Welcome to Making Bank. I am Josh Felber, where we uncover the mindset and the success strategies of the top 1% so you can amplify your life and your business today. I'm excited to welcome Forbes Riley, Scout Sobel, Ariel Garten, Sally Hogshead, Marisa Murgatroyd, Michelle Seiler Tucker, Rowena Gates to Making Bank today. Tell me a little about, um, so with your company now, you're getting to work with a lot of different entrepreneurs, and I know you have some really cool things that you, we were talking a little bit before, um, off camera and everything. What are some of the big things that you see when you first start working with entrepreneurs that probably a lot of our audience is experiencing um, that you're able to spot and then help move them through their business to make them the superhero? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the very first thing that I help people do is get crystal clear on exactly what they do, who they serve, how they're different. And it sounds so freaking simple, but I guarantee you that 99% of all entrepreneurs that I've talked to cannot answer those questions. Sure. Not just with crystal clarity, but in a way that anybody else gives a f- <laughs> yes. Right? I don't know, I agree. And it's just like boring. <laughs> yeah. And if you're boring people, they're not going to buy from you. Yep. Right? For so sure. here's the thing. like There are over 2 billion websites on the internet right now. And no matter what niche you're in, what industry you're in, there are other people who are going to steal your lunch if you can't figure out how to be entertaining and interesting. Sure. Right? Yep. So if you're not constantly doing this work, not just at the beginning when you do some stupid customer avatar exercise, but on a regular basis because you're changing, the market's changing, consumer expectations are changing, the world is changing all around us. And if you're not following that product innovation cycle, because in technology, products innovate every six months. Oh yeah. And the same is true in transformation, products, I don't care what industry you're in, the innovation cycle, the product development cycle is becoming shorter and shorter and shorter. So if you're not in that constant dialogue of going back to those fundamental questions, you're dead in the water because right now, best product, best market, best brand, all of that wins. Sure. So if you're not innovating on all of those fronts, it's gonna be hard for you to sustain interest and attention because people are skeptical. Right. One thing I always like to find out is, What's one question you're like, all right, Josh, I really wish you would ask this. It's like right there, and you know you should ask it. Um, so what question do you think I should ask you that you want to answer and you want to let everybody know about? Maybe, because I'm a disruptor, <laughs> is what is missing from what everybody else is doing? Okay. Yeah. Cool. And it does relate to what we've been talking about. Awesome. So let tell us yeah. what it is. Well, in addition <laughs> to having those big sticky <clears throat> ideas and not taking anybody's attention for granted, sure. I think what is missing is spending as much time on fulfillment of your products and your services, experiencifying them, gamifying them, as you spend on the marketing. Mm. So in a world where people are becoming increasingly skeptical, right. if you don't deliver the goods and get people to at least some form of outcome, sure. some action, some reward as quickly as possible, they're not gonna stay in the game, right. and you're gonna start to develop a bad reputation, and nobody ever goes into business thinking like, I wanna not get people the results <laughs> or deliver what right. I promise, but you'd be so surprised because a lot of people aren't putting as much care into the deliverable as they are into the client acquisition, the mm-hmm. marketing, the lead generation. And I think that for many, many years, like the first decade of internet marketing, people could get away with that. Right. But now people are a lot more savvy, and they're also a lot more skeptical. Sure. So what I think that a lot of people are missing is that commitment to getting people 
into results as quickly as possible. So if you have a software, how do you get them to the outcome of the software right. as quickly as possible? Sure. You know, for example, we have a software too called Heroic, which is okay. a cross between ClickFunnels and Squarespace. Oh, really? Branded websites <laughs> designed for conversion. So okay. our task with the UI and UX is how do we get people to create their site and take it live as quickly as possible? Right. The longer they delay, the less likely they are to continue subscribing. Sure. For example. Okay. You know? If you have a physical product, how do you get people to use the product, especially if it's a product that you're going to have to subscribe and right. buy over and over again? How do you get them to use the product? If you have a digital product, how do you get them to consume the product sure. right away? So for example, on our confirmation pages after someone's bought a digital product, I don't wait to send them to email and then log on to a membership site to consume. Right. They're consuming right there in the confirmation page. I said, how can I get them okay. watching the course, taking sure. the first action and getting the first win right before they've even left the page? So they right. automatically know that they're in a different environment because I've done something that very few people have done, which is get them into action within five minutes of buying. Wow. Okay. Right. You know, a lot of people lack the confidence or, you know, they're scared and worried about it and things like that. And I know for myself, I ended up uh, when I was 14, 15, stuff reading and learning and kind of starting to study Tony Robbins and everything and reading about reading, thinking, grow rich and started applying that into my life. And so all the different businesses I'd started over the years, I never really had that fear factor. I was like, oh, is this gonna fail? Or oh, what if this happens? Or what if this happens? It was just, you go after it and you go and you drive and you have that relentless drive and confidence and growth um, with you. So what kind of helps set that up for you and put you in that spot to have that and to be able to lead from that point? So it's interesting that you say that you never felt like you were gonna fail because that was the same experience I had. I just had this extraordinary confidence. And if I track it back, I probably came from my parents. I had really unconditional love from my mother. And so I really felt that deep support and that I could do anything. Um, and I was very blessed to have that and not everybody does. Sure. Um, but if you don't have that, there are lots of hacks to get you to the same place. And in my adult life, you know, looking back and identifying just how much I had no fear. I was just not afraid. I was not afraid of failing. And if I failed, it would be okay. I'd figure it out and I'd do something else. You right. know, I was, had that sense of adaptability that like, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to throw myself into it. Doesn't work out. You know, you just, you take two steps to the side and you see the thing next to it that will work and you learn from it and you move. And as an adult, I've really observed that aspect of myself and now I, I practically apply it and I really feel the feel your fear and do it anyways. You know, whenever I'm confronted with something that I'm afraid of, I recognize that it's just the sensation of fear. And on the other side of fear is always freedom. When you're able to step through your fear and you're able to actually confront that thing that's making you scared, you realize most of the time it's just use emotional reactivity. It's just stories you're telling yourself. It's just fear. It's okay. And when you reach out, you make the call, you ask the person, you make the relationship, typically 90% of the time, it is always better. It is always moving you forward. It is always taking you closer to the freedom that you're seeking. And so not being held back by that fear is both something that was extraordinarily powerful to, to me and a practice that anyone can learn. What's one last thing you're like, oh man, I just was hoping Josh was gonna ask me this, but he didn't, that you just wanna share with the audience? There's one thing I wanted to talk about. It's where we are at in the world today. 
you know, listening to this, we're probably in the middle of a pandemic. I can hope you're listening to it in a few weeks and the pandemic is over, but I, I think that's highly unlikely. And so we're in a part of our lives where we need to be incredibly adaptable to what comes. We need to be able to roll with the punches and we need to be able to effectively manage fear. We're all going to have fear in this situation and that's completely okay. But we also don't need to let the fear eat us. We need to do all of the things to keep ourselves safe. I am, I am very much of the belief that we need to protect one another from spreading the pandemic. But we don't need to be afraid while we're doing it. And we don't need to be afraid while our businesses are shifting and changing. Because that fear is something that is informing you that you need to act. But once you're taking those actions, you don't need to have the fear continue to feed. And so throughout this, you know, I encourage you to apply techniques that help you manage the fear because most of us feel like we need the fear in order to like survive and for a business to thrive and be scrappy. You don't. You can get through this, take the right steps, like manage in safe and effective ways without needing to carry the fear around with you. You are allowed to let that part go. I guess, you know, as entrepreneurs and there's, I mean, a lot of, I mean, myself, especially, you know, type A and, you know, you're just focused on driven and everything else. I guess, yeah. <laughs> hey. <laughs> hey, you know, I mean, you know, you, you are and as well as the people you work yeah. with. Um, how do you, I guess, encourage or help people in that position be able to find that or be able to open up and have that, be able to like share that vulnerability with other people? It, it, that's a really great question, um, and let's let's put I'm going to put the word vulnerability aside for a moment. Sure. We can get back to that. I've measured a million people with this assessment, the fascination advantage, to discover exactly that. What is the quality within somebody that allows them to communicate so authentically that they 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 don't have to try to pretend they're not rehearsing a script when they go in they feel confident. But we we discovered that we could identify certain traits within the high performers. And specifically, we've measured 100,000 high performing leaders within um, small businesses or, or entrepreneurs. And what we found, the high performers and their communication patterns, they do two things differently than the average performers. The first thing they do is high performers deliver a very specific benefit. So the benefit might be um, if somebody's detail-oriented, they're really good at details, they hone in on details, they look for clients and projects where they can over-deliver on details, they don't try to be the big-picture, rah-rah, visionary brainstormer. On the other hand, with the high-performing entrepreneurs were doing, um, on the other hand, if they weren't good at details, they didn't get anywhere near details because for them that made them feel like they were getting in the weeds. On both of these types of, of kind of the ultra-performers, the ones many of whom you and I know in common, they, what the ultra-performers were doing is they, they were both mostly type A, but they had different ways of communicating that. And sometimes that we think when somebody is... We have a classic mindset of the entrepreneur who's kind of this like eccentric genius and they, um, they're very verbal and they, they like to be able to jump right in. But the reality is a lot of the most successful ones that we studied tended to not want to jump into the spotlight, but instead they liked analysis. They liked to be meticulous. They wanted to really get in and craft and hone and they were uncomfortable with um, those, those big leaps of faith. Being to the point, if you know that you can go into a meeting or a presentation or any situation, even a first date. And you know that not only do you want to be confident, but you have to be confident in order to close this deal. Sure. 
if you can say to yourself, there's one thing I need to do in this meeting above everything else is that I need to be to the point. I don't have to be effusive. I don't have to try to be the funny guy. I need to be the to the point guy. And in doing that, I'm going to create confidence and connection with the person that I'm talking to. And that's coming back to what we were talking about a moment ago about high performers. That what the high performers do differently is they have this specific benefit. And um, you can think about it like a specialty. That was the second point. First point, high, uh, high performers um, deliver a specific benefit. Second point is they have a specialty. So you might even think your specialty is that you deliver to-the-point communication or to-the-point strategies, um, to-the-point ideas. And so if you kind of carry that around, sort of like, a, like an internal tagline or a positioning, a market positioning for yourself, it's going to be a lot easier for you to differentiate yourself I would never be defined as Sally to the point hogshead because that's not how I add value. That's not how my books go. It's not how my speaking goes. But I can deliver value in ways that would be uncomfortable for you. Sure. For example, it's really easy for me to um, – when I meet people, I like to connect with them. I love to be able to try wildly new things all the time. <laughs> I actually – I feel locked in by a rigid process. And so if you and I were working together on a team, that's why we would make a great pair because I would be coming in, Josh, I just had this great idea. What right. if we did this? Here, I've got a hundred different ways to do it. And you would be able to say, you know, <laughs> first of all, calm down. <laughs> and second of all, let's think this through so we can come up with one right answer instead of doing a million things at one time. One of the things that I, that, um, I learned early on in advertising is that you don't want to talk to everybody because then you end up talking to nobody, right? And the same is true. Like it, it, you, you have a choice. You can either have the biggest budget or you can be the most fascinating. If you don't have the biggest budget in your category, do not try to talk to everybody. You must be fascinating in some specific way. For better or for worse, I uh, was born with the last name Hogshead. And what I, I, I found that it's a very polarizing last name. If people think it, people think I made it up. Um, I yesterday I was on a briefing call and the client kept calling me Sally Hogs Breath. And I, it's sort of like once you get halfway into the conversation where they've already said it like three times. Right. Okay, I'm just gonna, I'm just not going to say anything. But <laughs> so here's what I did strategically. I decided that I wanted to be polarizing. That the people who reached out to um, connect with me and with my company. Um, that we we were very specifically trying to alienate certain people so that the people that would love us would really, really love us so we could attract our ideal client. So at the bottom of my business card, first of all, I have a, I have a hog on oh, my, nice. um, my stationery. And at the bottom, it draws upon um, something that my, um, my dad told me when I was young. He said, the last name Hogshead really isn't that bad. A hogshead is a barrel that holds 62 gallons. So my business, my, uh, my stationery says, a hogshead is a barrel that holds 62 gallons. So what's your last name, smartass? <laughs> and when I put that, and it was on the website, and this right. is an important thing for all of us as entrepreneurs to remember, we have to find specific ways that we're polarizing so that we can be fascinating. From my understanding, based on a little bit that I briefly know on the technology, you know, just, and I, when I got the device, I was explaining and showing the kids on the chart, you know, from what the book we read and the oxidative stress and everything and eating and how processed food affects the whole cycle and all that. So maybe you can give us a little more insight than my simple explanation. <laughs> sure. There's two sides. One is the oxidative damage that's caused by things like bad food and lots of other environmental factors, toxins. 
And then the other side is the ability of the system to rebalance itself metabolically to kind of figure itself out and come back uh, into some kind of a balance that's going to work well. And it's constantly doing that. And so those are all protein functions, the repair of the damage from oxidative stress and anything the system's doing to come back into balance. That's all, all that work is done by proteins. And proteins are, are that's what we address. And, and just in case people aren't familiar with it, the proteins are the workhorses in the cells. They literally do sure. everything. So we address those proteins by helping them fold better. And it turns out proteins have to fold into a 3D structure before they can work. And our technology adjusts the cellular water in a way that creates a better environment for the proteins to do their folding. And essentially when they fold, they get their energy from the water. Okay. And what we're doing is upping that energy level or order in the water so the proteins can draw on it. And so by that, with the metabolic side of things, the body knows what to do. We're not overriding anything, directing it, you know, inserting it. Um, the body knows what to do. It's just um, giving it a little bit better ability to, to do whatever those tasks are, including repairing damage and, and all the work it does. Gotcha. Okay. So anything like kind of throughout what's happening in life, whether you're working out, that's oxidative stress, whether you're flying, you know, in an airplane, you get all that oxidative stress from that, whether eating bad, those kind of things. And so that's damaging our uh, cells and our DNA and different things like that. And so then what you guys are doing with this system is then it's creating additional folds in the protein that'll then help the repair cycle work more efficiently. Yeah, those proteins have to fold and be stable to do their job. And so we're just helping with that part of it. Some of our entrepreneurs are watching, they may, they may not be the athletic, they just, you know, they, they, they run their business and spend time with their family and do those kind of things. Like what other uh, optimal situations, you know, does this help us with? you know, from a performance, overall immunity and health. Yeah. Well, all of us entrepreneurs are focusing, concentrating, and that's equivalent to running the marathon with your brain instead of your legs. <laughs> You're doing the same oxidative damage. It's interesting. I just did an interview with Jim Quick on this, but it's yeah. like, of course, and the symptoms are things like, um, decision fatigue, brain fog, mm. you know, you can notice these things when you've overstressed your brain. It's exactly the same situation, only you really want to make sure that you take care of your brain. Right. And so, and so um, it's the same thing. You want to get rid of the oxidation, get things working better, keep it, you know, keep yourself alert and feeling good and certainly not have any buildup of issues in your brain. And that's, um, that can be shown on a QEEG where they can scan the brain and you can see before and after with one session even. Oh, wow. The extent to which you can, yeah, you can eliminate that inappropriate brain activity, which is that kind of that brain chatter that makes it so it's hard to concentrate. Just even with the magazine, you know, I guess, you know, just going for it and doing it, you know, what were kind of some of those things that 
helped that you learned then that helped you now with your agency and everything that you're doing? Yeah. So I had no idea what inventory was, what ISBN numbers were, what costs were, what distribution was. I mean, when I say that I had zero experience in the magazine world, I had zero experience. I was an intern who in New York who ran, you know, Alexander McQueen clothes back to the Alexander McQueen thing. That's all I did. Sit on a subway <laughs> clothes and run around the city. So I didn't know anything. And the main lesson that I really learned was that everything is figure outable. Like Marie Forleo always says that that's like her, yeah. point, which I so admire in her, but it really truly is like I needed an ISBN number. I said, what that? And so I Googled it and I got it real quick and figured it out. And so being able to do that, especially since I was really in the depths of my bipolar disorder at that time, being able and um, seeing a product on a shelf that is being sold, did I make money from that venture? No, I hadn't mastered that yet. But as a 22-year-old in community college, I figured out how to create a project, create a product, get it sold, get it distributed, manage a small team. Everyone worked for free. And it was the biggest lesson of my life. And it also gave me the confidence to know that I can do what I want to do. Entrepreneurship is such a buzz. And obviously, the people listening here are entrepreneurs. And so it's in their blood. But also, you have to be really honest with yourself on, is this who I am? Like, yeah, it sounds great to be the boss. It sounds great to create your own thing. I'm telling you right now, it's freaking emotional. And it is the most self-development work I've ever done this year, just to make sure that I am on and productive and optimizing and there for my team and, you know, supporting them emotionally and financially and creating office culture and checking the numbers and brainstorming. I mean, it sounds really great and it is, it fulfills me, but it's not for everybody. Like you don't have to force yourself to be something because it sounds cool right now. You have to really think about, is this the work that I'm cut out for? I'm going to share something fun because I'm doing something not a lot of people are doing. I've invited my daughter into my world and this little 17 year old who's been doing funnels for five years changed my entire life. Um, <clears throat> I wasn't really an online person. Uh, not that I didn't know it existed, and I have some friends who are crushing it to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars in that space, but it always seemed a little confusing between the email marketing and the building the funnels. And this little girl came to me. A couple of years ago, she came to me. Said, hey, mom. I'm like, what? She said, I, can I have $100? I said, no. What, what do you want it for? I want to buy Bitcoin. Really? Hey, mom, what? Oh, can I have $500? I'm like, for what? Can I buy a Bitcoin? I'm like, no. Hey, mom, Bitcoins are 10 grand. I'm like, and now they're 40. I got to tell you something. You've got kids at home. The best thing you can do is actually stop telling them what you know. Ask them what they know. Kids are an amazing sure. wealth of, of information. And when I sat down and sat still in COVID, the middle of COVID, my daughter said, Mom, I'm going to do the back end for you because you've never found anyone who's done it or whatever the issues were. And we built out a coaching platform where I teach pitching, where I get to do what I love because I love to do. And the Zoom room is my haven. I can see you in that room. I can tweak your pitch, get you to, and literally, I've got people who now in, in five months, published books, gotten a national talk show on all kinds of platforms, all because of the work that I did with them. It feels so gratifying. And she's handling all that back end. And it's been extraordinary. In fact, at, uh, we went to Funnel Hacking this year, invited by Russell. Russell spoke, he shouted my daughter and I out to 35,000 people at 10X3. And at 10X2 did the same thing. It's like, I think I didn't realize how amazing she was. And we've created a phenomenal relationship. I, I feel sad for people who were alone during this time. 
I have a lot of friends. In fact, I was a savior for some of those people because they were isolated. I've got a girlfriend who's stuck in a house by herself in Australia. They're, they're locked down. In England, they're locked down. And so one, communicating with your family if you've got them. Dig deep. I'm cherishing this time that I get to spend with them. Um, number two, I'm at a point, and Josh, maybe you can help me. I played a little small. Does that sound familiar at all? Yeah, it might be to a couple. Because, and not because you're afraid that you can't do it, because maybe you're afraid you can do it and how big could it get? And I said, when my kids turn 18, I said this a long time ago, I'm going to reignite and, and really explode. I was friends with uh, Jarek Robbins, Tony's son. And the thing that he says, he's a great kid. He says, my dad just wasn't around. I love him, but he wasn't there. And I remember thinking, I don't want to miss my kid's childhood. And now they're in an age where I'm going to dig in and go fast because I don't think there's a lot of female role models in my position. Sure. In fact, let me ask you a question. You're, you're pretty hip in that world, right? Who's the top five speakers that you like listening to? Male, that motivate you. Uh, male speakers? Yeah. Uh, I mean, Tony Robbins has always been one. Um, he's always been my mentor <laughs> since I was a little kid. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's see. Mark Cuban has always been mm -hmm. um, as well. Oh, You've got names like Gary Vee and Grant Cardone and Lewis Gary Howard. Gary Vee, yeah. Jeff Brown. Grant. Now name yep. the women for me. Let's see. Sarah Blakely. Okay. Because her, her husband, Jesse Itzler. She's, they're both great. <laughs> uh, let's see. You. Kind of funny. There are a lot of men out there and there's not, and here's the thing is I haven't blown up my own world enough. And that is what I'm focusing on because I think having lived as long as I have and been through some massive tragedy, you know, when you go through the death of a child, I was an eyewitness to the Las Vegas shooting. I have a lot of crazy stories. Um, mm. I'm devoting the next part of my life <clears throat> to up-leveling other people. And I am open and very supportive to having people go, hey, how can we aid you in this? Part of it's been Clubhouse, just getting a platform to talk. And I really want people to nail their pitch, get the way that they speak to the world. I want them to stop playing so small. You know, I don't know. We none of us, Josh. Were you guaranteed anything in this life? No. Did you make your own way? Yes. Did you? Did anybody give you your podcast? By the way, I have not been given anything along my journey. Right. Isn't that interesting? Because that is your journey. So you got to stop waiting. No, you, the day that you decide that you're an expert is the day you become an expert. Same thing. I remember when I opened my first LLC, I'm like, yo, yo, I'm a CEO. <laughs> this is so cool. I opened it. But, but it's funny because a lot of people are waiting. Don't wait. Take action. Play big. Reach out and touch us. Listen to Josh's podcast. I've got a live radio show I should invite you to on Wednesdays. I've been doing it for 10 years called The Forbes Factor. We talk about health, wealth, and happiness. And enjoy this life. Play the game. It is definitely a crazy game. It has ups and downs, but don't stay in any one spot. <clears throat> you know, the crazy thing about a game, you always have to roll the dice and move forward. Sometimes right. you land in the jail part of Monopoly. Sometimes you land on boardwalk. But if you don't roll the dice and stay stuck, I don't think that's the definition of life. Mm, so true. 80% of the businesses don't sell. Mm -hmm. um, I guess, what are some of those top reasons? So the number one reason is that business owners never think about selling until a catastrophic mm -hmm. event has occurred. Most business owners don't plan their exit. They think about it when they're like, oh my gosh, I was diagnosed with cancer or oh my gosh, 
we're getting a divorce or partner disputes or death. I mean, I just had a sweet little old lady call me a couple months ago. Her husband dropped dead of a heart attack and left her with a mountain of debt. She's like in her 80s and she's like, can you help me? And I looked at everything and there's nothing I can do because he didn't have a business. He had a glorified job. He was, he had a construction company, he had subcontractors, but he didn't have any processes. He had nothing in place. So there was nothing to sell. So most business owners have created a glorified job in which they go to work for every day versus a a business that works for them. And when you're trying to sell during a catastrophic event, your business is typically turning downward. The best time to sell your company is when the business is going up and it's in its prime. So that's, that's some of the mistakes that business owners make, you know, and then they don't run the, they don't actually create a business or grow a business that buyers actually want to buy. Mm. And so tell me more about that. So buyers look for businesses that operate on what I call the six P's. The six P's is what I've come up with over the last 20 years. My company has sold over a thousand businesses. And so, but we've worked with thousands and thousands of businesses. The, The six P's is the infrastructure you need to build a sustainable business, even if you never want to sell, you should do this anyway, to build a sustainable business, a scalable business. And when you're ready, you'll have an actual sellable asset. So number one is people. Hmm. The number one reason that businesses are not sellable is because the owner is the business. I take that owner out of the business, there is no business. I have a dentist that wants to sell. He's been in business 45 years, two dental hygienists, two dental hygienists, and that's it. And he's like, Michelle, I'm not staying after the sell. Well, then you got nothing to sell. <laughs> we take you out of the business, the clients leave. Right. So the number one thing is people. You have to have the right people in the right positions. And mm. you have to ask the who question, Josh. Who opens the door? Who deals with clients? Who deals with marketing? Who deals with legal? Who deals with accounting? Who deals with environmental? Who, who deals with logistics, manufacturing? The list goes on and on. The clue here is that you should never be next to the who. Right. So entrepreneurs really need to focus on their strengths and hire their weaknesses and then also have a layer of management team. Because if you're trying to sell a business for a million dollars, $10 million, $50 million, the business has to run without you. Buyers don't want to buy a job. So people is number one. And that's the number one reason businesses don't sell. The second most important reason the businesses don't sell is because of product. So product is your product, your industry, your service, you know, and most companies right now, unfortunately, because of the pandemic, they're in a dying industry. So you have to look at your industry and you have to ask yourself, is my industry, my product on the way up or on the way out? Is that thriving or dying? Do I have an Amazon and I'm at my prime? Or do I have a blockbuster and I'm about to go bust? (laughs) So product is very important. I I work with my clients to ask these three transformational questions. And Amazon did this back in the 90s. Amazon asked themselves, what business are we in? And every business owner should do this. What business are we in? Amazon said book selling. Then they asked themselves, what do we do really, really well, better than anyone else? And they said, well, the thing we do best is fulfillment. Then they asked themselves, what business should we be in? And I said, oh my gosh, we should be in the fulfillment business. Mm. So those three questions alone transformed Amazon from a small bookseller that nobody knew to a multi-billion dollar worldwide conglomerate that everybody knows and uses. So product is huge. And then the third P is processes. Processes are typically never thought about. It's kind of like an exit strategy, Josh. Right. 
business owners don't think about processes until something bad in their company happens and they're like, oh, we need a process for that. <laughs> like we're still a manufacturing company and one of the employees had a catastrophic event happen on the manufacturing floor and lost an arm. And the owner said, oh my gosh, we need a health and safety process for that. And I'm like, you needed that beforehand. <laughs> now they're at risk of going out of business. So you really need to start, you really need to think about your processes from the beginning of buying or starting a business and really create your processes with the customer experience in mind. And what I mean by that, have you ever done business with a company and you're like, oh my God, this is the best experience ever, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Or if you go to someplace like McDonald's, no matter what McDonald's you go to, the experience is the same, right? You're going to get a hot food. It's going to be, it's going to be, you know, it's going to taste good and it's going to be fast. You know, they, they never said their food's going to be healthy or organic for you. <laughs> and <laughs> McDonald's, did, did you ever watch that movie, The Founder? Oh, yeah. 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 So do you remember back in the 40s, the McDonald's brothers said, we're going to create a fast food restaurant. We're going to build it around the customer experience. We want them to get hot food that tastes great, two minutes or less. Do you remember when I yep. went out to the tennis courts and I took all their employees to the tennis courts and I drew out the processes? Do you remember that scene? Uh, vaguely, yes. You got to go back and watch it. Yeah. It was <laughs> then they erased it. They were out there all day figuring out the processes to obtain the customer experience. And and those processes, even though they've been tweaked along the way, it's why you can eat at a McDonald's anywhere in the world and get the exact same experience. So you really have to design your processes with the customer experience in mind. How many times have you been, how many times have you done business with a company? I'm not going to name names, but banks, social media companies, <laughs> the processes are terrible. The processes are designed for their agenda, mm -hmm. not for the client experience. So the processes need to be also efficient, productive, well-documented. First thing buyers do is they want to come in and look at your policy and procedure manuals. They want to see your SOP checklist. They want to see your employees' non-competes. They want to see your employee mm -hmm. handbooks. So, I mean, we're selling a company right now for between 50 to $60 million and they have no PP manuals, <laughs> you know, so that's very important. And then proprietary is another huge value driver. And this can take you from a five multiple to maybe an eight multiple. What's one thing you're like, oh man, I was hoping Josh was going to ask me this, but he didn't because we got off um, on another direction. Something you really want to share with everybody. I think one of the biggest things to share with everybody, two big things. Uh, number one is I, I call it the GPS exit model that everyone should plan their exit from the beginning rather than when a catastrophic event occurs. Right. And I'll run you through that real quick because nobody really does this. You know, I do have clients in my mentoring program that are doing this now, but number one, start with the end in mind. You know, when you want to drive somewhere, you pull out your phone and you plug in Google maps. What's the first thing you plug in? Your destination. Yeah. Or your address, your destination. Yep. You know where you're going, but so many business owners have no idea where they're going. So they drive around in circles up and down the financial hills to end up nowhere or end up for selling for pennies on a dollar, end up closing your business or end up filing bankruptcy. So don't do that. <laughs> you know, yeah. business owners don't plan to fail. They fail the plan. So I tell all business owners, plug in your destination. Figure out your desired end game. What is your desired price tag? Let's say you want to sell for $20 million. Great. That's a number. You might say, oh my God, that's too high whatever, pick a number. You might make it, you might not make it, but you got to start somewhere. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. And sure. now the GPS needs to know what next, where you're starting from. 
What's your current location? What's your current evaluation?、Mm-hmm. You'd be surprised, Josh, how many business owners have no clue what their business is worth. They they have a, a, a perception of what they think it's worth, but what they think it's worth is based upon what they want to retire on, not what the value is of their business. So it's really important. I mean, us humans go to the doctors all the time, right, to get annual checkups to make sure our body's okay. We drive our car to mechanics. To get our car checked up, but we never get an annual valuation checkup. So there, are, there are、okay. events that increase valuation. COVID is one of them. <laughs> there are events that decrease valuation. COVID is one of them. So you really need to know every year what your business is worth. So let's say your business is worth five million dollars. You want to sell for twenty million. You're worth five million dollars today. Now, what do you need to know? You need to know your time frame. Sure. So let's say you want to do that in ten years. Now you need to know who's the buyers going to be, not buyer buyers. A lot of buyer, a lot of owners will come to me and say, "Michelle, I have a buyer." I can promise you, I'll put money on the table that that buyer is probably not going to close on the sale of your business. And not only that, but if you have one buyer, you're not going to maximize value. You、right. maximize value by competition, by scarcity, by creating those you know buyers who want to pay more money for those synergies we talked about.、Um, so. Who are your buyers going to be? Number one, there's five types of buyers. I tell you, a buyer is not going to be. It's not going to be a first-time buyer because they don't buy twenty million dollar companies. It's not going to be a, a turnaround specialist because they buy distressed assets. It's going to be a PEG, which is a private equity group, a strategic or a competitor. Strategics will typically pay more, a higher multiple, because they're buying synergies that will catapult their business to the next level. Sure. So you got strategic slash competitors, and then you got the serial entrepreneurs. Serial entrepreneurs are industry agnostic; they chase EBITDA. We have over twenty eight thousand of all five types of buyers. We have serial entrepreneurs that give us an offer on every business we have with an EBITDA of over a million dollars. Okay. Okay. Then you need to know well, what's the financials? What are the, if I want to sell for twenty million dollars? What do my financials need to be? What does the gross need to be? What does the profit margin need to be? The EBITDA is going to have to be between three to four million dollars. Mm-hmm. And then, last but not least, what are the synergies? What are the characteristics? You know, what is a buyer? I mean, I once had a buyer pay pay one hundred and twenty six percent more than what the business was worth because they were buying the BP contract. Thank you again, and、uh, you are watching Making Bank. I am Josh Felber. Get out and be extraordinary. Thank you for listening to Making Bank. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave a review. And sharing is caring. Follow Josh Felber on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram for more. You can also listen to Making Bank on Amazon Alexa, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and watch on Apple TV, SuccessThinkers Network, Amazon Fire, and YouTube.